The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles now, if you would please, to Revelation chapter 2. And I've been away for two weeks, and today I want to finish the message that I began before the July 4th holiday. And I feel ready to, to get into this because just last week in, uh, while I was in Kentucky, I preached from this same passage of Scripture, a different message that I'm preaching today, but we did look at this Scripture uh, in the church in Kentucky last week. The title of the series is The Spirit Speaks to, uh, to Seven Churches, to the Seven Churches. And the Spirit, of course, is the Holy Spirit. And seven is the number of churches that we find in Revelation 2 and 3 that the Holy Spirit spoke to. Seven is a number that stands for completeness. Uh, these two chapters are a comprehensive message to all churches in all times. The churches are individual assemblies of believers that were commended or corrected according to the need of that church. On two Sunday mornings each week, or each month rather, you're very much aware that we have a Sunday morning forum class, and that is a, a class where uh, the members of the class are invited to ask questions about the Bible. And I'm very thankful for the questions that I get. Uh, people have studied the Bible, and they're questions that they want to ask as they think about the scriptures, their subjects that need to be clarified. And that's an adult class, and I do appreciate those questions very much. But I would have to say that I'm probably more intrigued by questions that we come uh, or get from children in our Sunday school classes. Our, our teachers teach the Bible. Children are listening and learning from the Bible. And occasionally a teacher will come to me and they'll come with a comment or a question that has been asked in a Sunday school class. This was quite, uh, quite a bit more common when we had the school here that teachers would come and say, well, what do you think about this? This question was raised in the Sunday school class. Uh, recently, Nancy Andrews told me some questions were asked about the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And I can tell you that the opinions and comments by, from some of our young people are quite profound. And I was impressed by that. Uh, Samantha approached me a few weeks ago about another question uh, concerning the Holy Spirit that a student had asked. And the class was reading in Revelation. I'm not sure what the text in Revelation they were studying. I believe it might have been chapter 4. And I'd like you to turn there for just a minute to Revelation chapter 4. And I want you to look at the, the fifth verse in this fourth chapter. Revelation chapter 4 and verse number 5. It says, And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And the question concerned that last part, the seven spirits of God. And I can tell you that is confusing to both adults and children. Uh, it's a very common question that we get about Revelation because several times in the book it mentions seven spirits. And I'm going to leave you wondering about that for a while, because it will come up again as we study uh, chapter 3 uh, on the churches. What are the seven spirits of God? Well, I'll give you just a heads up to the meaning. 
Uh, as in our text of Revelation 2, verse number 1, 7 is a very important number in Scripture. It stands for completeness. And so when referring to the Spirit, it refers to His completeness, the fullness, the perfection of God as He stands in a unique relationship to His church. Now, understanding that and returning to Revelation chapter 2, we see that 7 is a very, very significant number in Scripture. So let's read these first seven verses. In Revelation 2, this is a message from the Spirit of Christ to the church at Ephesus. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. The Spirit speaks to seven churches. The first church that we see here is the church at Ephesus. Of the seven, this is probably the largest of the seven churches. It was in the most prominent city of these seven churches. And the church at Ephesus has a very interesting and important history in Christianity. This is the church where Paul preached for three years. He had a teaching ministry among these people, perfecting their understanding of the Christian faith. And three years with the Apostle Paul is certainly long enough to receive a seminary education. And so by reading Paul's letter to the Ephesians that was written about 30 years prior to what we're reading here, we can understand that Paul presented to them some very difficult doctrines, some strong doctrinal positions, and these people at Ephesus were not stumped by what Paul had to say. It, it was difficult doctrine, but they, they were taught by the Apostle Paul to understand it, and these very same doctrines, as we read them today in the book of Ephesians, are sometimes very hard for Christians to grab hold of and to understand. Even erudite theologians don't understand what's written in the book of Ephesians. But Ephesians really shouldn't be all that hard for us. It's only when people begin to manipulate the Scriptures and want to take it away from what Paul intended that things become exceedingly difficult. But the Ephesian letter is indicative of the strong doctrinal position of this church in Revelation chapter 2. And I believe that this was a flagship church, a very strong doctrinal church, a church that stood out among others and was a doctrinal model that other churches could look to. Both the Apostle Paul and Paul's, or rather the Apostle John and Paul's companion Timothy were pastors of the church at Ephesus at one time. And so three of the greatest leaders of Christianity were associated with this Ephesian church. That would be the Apostle Paul, who taught them and uh, helped to organize that church, and the Apostle John, and also, as I said, Paul's companion, Timothy. And then there was one more, a fourth one. That's Apollos, that great orator that we find 
in the, uh, the book of Acts that he was also at Ephesus teaching the people. And so we understand then that this is a, is a church with a very strong doctrinal foundation. I don't think that you could find one that was better. So the first letter of the Spirit of Christ goes to this outstanding church. And first of all, that we see about it, what the Spirit had to say to them was a recognition of their faith. That the Holy Spirit recognized and commended their faith. He observed the outworking of their faith. And I'm not sure that applauded is the word that we want to use, but if you understand what I, what I mean by this, the Spirit applauded them, the Lord applauded them for their untiring service to Him. They were untiring and very diligent in their works, and they had many works. Tireless laborers, patient laborers. They were patient to keep on working, even though there was much opposition in that city. The influence against Christianity was very strong there because Ephesus was a bastion of paganism. And these are people that were faithful to the Lord even though they were persecuted. But one of the things we learn about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ down through its history is that persecution never stops true Christians. And it didn't stop the people at Ephesus. And then the Lord also commended them, as I said, for doctrine. It was difficult doctrine that they wouldn't compromise. Unlike uh, many Baptists today, uh, they didn't feel a need to correct the Lord's doctrine to make Him appear to be fairer or more loving to people. They didn't compromise with those that John called Antichrist. Remember I told you a couple of messages ago that the Apostle John is the only one who uses that term in the Scripture, Antichrist. Christ. He said there are many antichrists, Paulus antichristos. He's the only one who uses that term. And, and the Lord says you will not compromise with the antichrist, the preachers that want to corrupt morality and your theology. Verse number 2 says that they wouldn't bear those that are evil. They hated immorality and yet they lived in one of the most immoral, perverse societies that the world has ever seen. And so they wouldn't allow that into their church. They guarded their church against it. There is no way that you would call this the tolerant church because they were not tolerant of perversions that are called abominations to God. In verse 6, it says they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And we don't exactly understand, don't know for sure who these people were, but they represent people who are against the gospel of Christ. People that are against the doctrines of the apostles. And if the doctrine was not biblical, then they did not allow that doctrine into their church. It was not welcome. They would not permit any doctrinal compromise for any reason. And so the Lord commends them for that very strong standing. Ephesus was a church that was unlike the run-of-the-mill junk churches that we find in our time. If you attend a church where people stare at you because you bring a Bible to church, then you know that there's a problem. The Bible is our doctrine, and if a preacher doesn't frequently refer to the Bible, take his text from the Bible, then you, you can mark it down that there is a preacher and there's a church that is in doctrinal compromise. You cannot stay out of the Bible and stay faithful to the Bible. And you can't worship the living Christ without the written word you cannot worship the living word without the written word, which is the Bible. And so here at Berean, we use the Bible, we stay in the Bible, we teach from the Bible, we preach from the Bible, we encourage people through the Bible 
Because that's the only rule of our faith and practice. And this Ephesian church was that way. Thirty years after Paul preached to them, they were still that way. So doctrinally and morally, there was much to commend this church for. But there is a problem. And this letter was written because of this problem. This is not just a way that the Spirit wants to reach them with applause. There are two shoes here. There's a shoe of commendation, but unfortunately there's another shoe that's about to drop. In verse number 4, the text begins with nevertheless. And it is that nevertheless that is the bombshell that had the potential to destroy this church. Now secondly, what we want to look at is the Lord's reprimand for their faults. In verse number 4, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, this is a flagship church. This is a leading, leading church that others look to. If you were going to join an active church, this is the one that you join. If you want to join a church that's doctrinally correct, this is the church that you join. If you want to join a church that is moral, that is upstanding, that people dress right, they act right, they speak right, then this is the church that you want to join. If your kids were too much influenced by the world, this is the church that has a youth group with a leader that would counteract the junk that they're taught in the public school system. As adults, if you were tired of, the, of fluff sermons and latte-sipping preachers in skinny jeans and t-shirts, this is your church. If, 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 if you're fed up with sermons that are filled with inane, silly illustrations that are intended to te teach kindergarten kids, this is your church. If you wanted to be theologically substantial, this is the church. Now the very strange thing about this church, it's hard to believe that a church can be theologically correct, can be morally upright, can be untiring in community works and public service. It seems almost impossible that the Lord would accuse them of this. They did not love Him. They loved good doctrine. They loved studying theology. They loved practical applications of piety, but they did not love him. And so he said, you have left your first love. And that's what the Spirit wanted to say to this church. Yes, you are to be commended for all the works that you do, but you have a very big problem, and that is that you love working for Christ, but you're not in love with Christ. And that is a problem. You have left your first love. Now that's an indication, first love is an indication that there are other loves. And this is what they had done. They'd let the other loves come in and crowd out that first place that Jesus was to have in their lives. Now let me help you to understand two critical issues that we find here. The first is lost exclusivity. Now I believe in some sense these are people that love the Lord. I'm sure children in Sunday school uh, still sang songs about Jesus, and I'm sure they had... Some sort of hymn with stanzas that paralleled, Oh, how I love Jesus. Maybe they even had a Hillsong version where they sang it 14 times and had a bridge that lasted 18 minutes. Maybe their worship team shook and shimmied and rolled while the band played on about their love for Jesus. Well, it's not that they don't have any love for Him. It's just that Jesus was lumped in with all the other things that they loved. They loved to jam. They loved to feel good about themselves. They loved to worship, but they didn't know very much about the God that they worshipped. 
And this is what we find in churches today, that people love entertainment in the church. This is what they come for. They come for the entertainment. They love the sights and the sounds of wannabe rock groups that are not much better than, than poor imitations of a poor genre. And so they're really moved when the fog machine turns on and the fog rolls in and the lights go low and the activity begins and the worship leader says, we are going to bring on worship. I had a fellow write to me a while back who wanted to know if he could come to our church and lead worship in our church. And in his letter he said, I have a unique ability to bring worship to the church. And there you go. This is exactly what I'm talking about. I suppose he had a unique ability to bring the Holy Spirit with him. Imagine what that would look like, him and the Holy Spirit driving into the parking lot together to bring us worship. Well, it's not Jesus that people love, it's the show. And so many people come to church looking for the show. And since we don't have one, they don't stay along, stay around very long to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This Ephesian church is a church that had a program for everything. If you wanted to work in the church, you could work in your heart's content. And there isn't a problem with that. There's no problem with programs and multitudes of good works. The problem is working for Jesus without really knowing Jesus. And so what we have here is a church that is overfilled with Marthas and nobody was a Mary. They were busy serving but not loving. And do you remember what Jesus told Martha? She complained to him that, that Mary didn't help her serve the guest at dinner, that Martha cleaned the house, she prepared the food, she waited on the table, she washed the dishes, but Mary, no, no, Mary was no help to her because all that Mary did was to sit at the feet of Jesus. And why would you want to do that? I mean, Jesus is only wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Why would you want to spend time with him when there are so many other things to do? Mary made her choice. She said, take your show. Take your band. I'll sit at the feet of Jesus. I'll listen to the word of God. There isn't anything that's important as Jesus. And so Jesus said to Martha, Martha, you are troubled about many things. And he meant that she was busy, she was anxious, she was worried about too much. And he said, Mary has chosen the good part, that part that will not be taken away from her. So do you understand this, that all the works that we do, if the focus of those works is not right, if we're not working for the one that we actually love, then all of these works are like a match put, match put to a haystack. They all go up in flames. The most important thing that we can do is to establish our hearts in Jesus Christ, make the focus Him. Now, I love people that are busy in the church. We love workers in the church. But more than busy people, what we need is people who will come and sit at the feet of the Word of God. And I want to explain this to you. When Jesus was present, they were to sit there, and they were to do as Mary did. That was sit and learn from Jesus as he spoke the word of God. Now physically, they could actually do it. They could physically sit at his feet. And who would want to look back after Jesus was gone and say, well, you know, I never really spent much time with him. I never spent much time listening to Jesus. And did you know that today Jesus Christ is still present with us in the presence of the Holy Spirit? Do you sit at his feet and listen it's still possible 
to sit and to learn from Jesus. And that's what happens when we open the Bible. When, when the Bible is read and the preacher gives the sense of the reading of the Scriptures, that is Jesus speaking to us. Jesus is the living Word whose presence is in the written Word. And He's there through the power of the Holy Spirit. And you're not going to love Jesus unless you love His Word. If you don't love the Bible, you don't love Jesus. Well, I can see that the Ephesian church was in danger because they had replaced the Word with other reading materials. That they buried the Word of God under their theology books and under their other Christian literature and other educational materials. And so what they did was they loved to watch Veggie Tales, but they didn't read the Word of God. Did you know a preacher also faces this danger? A danger of falling in love with books and being able to give you some nuggets of men's wisdom that are gleaned from books. There isn't anything wrong with reading theology books. I do that all the time. But what happens many times in a preacher's life is that the love of books takes away reading the Bible. And if we don't read and pray over the Scriptures, we soon lose touch with the one that we do this for. So we can be very orthodox in everything that we do in the church, but folks, we can be stuck in a cold, dead orthodoxy. So there has to be a balance between promoting theology and morality and glorifying this one that we work for. And so our love must be exclusively Christ, and the works that we do are to flow out of that love. Maintain the love of the heart, and you will maintain a heart of love. Now secondly... The problem in the Ephesian church is their lost expectancy. And this always follows. If you don't focus on Christ as the one that you love, then you stop thinking about seeing the one that you love. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give thee at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Have you thought about what all the Christian works are for? Why do we do this? These are things that are to occupy us until Christ comes. And our focus is not the works, but the Christ that we do these works for. And so what we're to do as we work for Christ is to keep one eye on the plow and one eye on the sky. And if we always have two eyes on the plow, there isn't anybody to look at the sky. Now, I suppose that in Paul's time, there was much, much more preaching about the second coming of Christ. You see, one of the problems that we have with complacent Christianity today is that we have no persecution. We don't have anybody, really anybody telling us, you can't do this, you can't serve God. We're free to meet here this morning without any interference at all. And so that lack of persecution sometimes causes us not to seek deliverance in Christ's return. We don't have anything we think to be delivered from. I mean, the most persecution that we get is the thought, well, if we're not very careful, we're going to lose our tax-exempt status. That's our persecution. I mean, I mean, is this the thing that drives us to look for Christ? Maybe when Christ comes, he'll give us a little bit of relief to the bottom line. Is that what makes you yearn for Christ to come? So today what we do is we pull out a second coming sermon every few years, we don't use it again until the next lectionary cycle, until the liturgy comes up again, the liturgy cycle. Why do we need Christ to come back? We're doing just fine. There's no problems. 
Well, folks, they weren't doing just fine in the first century church, and so we find the second coming is all over the New Testament. First and second Thessalonians was written with urgency because believers were under such persecution that they were fast losing their hope. And it was so bad, persecution so bad, they actually thought that they had missed the second coming of Christ and they had been left behind. And that sort of sums up the second coming for Christians today. This is all that they've done. They've read the silliness of left behind. And they watch their terrible B-movies and their fantasies, weird fantasies of Tim LaHaye, and that's their theology of Christ's return. Somebody told me, your theology of the second coming is wrong. And I said, why is it wrong? Well, because I can't find it in the Left Behind series. Well, I'm sorry, but folks, but Left Behind has been left behind. Did you know that? I mean, the Bible's still here. Like all the other fads, those things fade away, but the Word of God is settled forever. So here, this may be the problem at Ephesus. Love of theology, love of morality. They loved short hair, long hymns, working on bus routes, but they forgot what all of it was for. And they lost that expectancy to see their faith end in sight. Now what I want you to see is that the Spirit can't live in that kind of church. A church without Jesus... Without him as the focus, that is a church that is headed for failure because Christ is not going to stay where he is not glorified. Now in this text, we come to a third part, and that is a reference to their future. Now I, I, I must comment on this because I believe it is important. Almost 15 years ago, when I became pastor of Brian, one of the first things that I did was to begin to preach on the purpose of our lives that our chief purpose is to glorify God. I attended this church for five years. I don't recall sermons that emphasize the reason that we need to be busy. And this was a very, very busy church. Again, nothing wrong with being a busy church. But I didn't hear sermons that emphasize how that busyness was for the purpose of glorifying God. I didn't hear very much that was doctrinally grounding or that we serve for the majesty and the glory of the Almighty God. And so I heard typical fundamental preaching about salvation. That's good. Service, that's not bad. But to tell you the truth, this line between justification and sanctification was blurred. It's not all that clear. And I'm not saying there was no consideration of God's glory. I'm just telling you that when I started to preach that man's purpose is only this, this we've been created for only this, we are saved for only this, that is to glorify God, there were people that came to me and said, we've never heard that emphasis before. Now, I know for most of you sitting here have been here these 15 years, that seems like a very strange thing. But folks, that is not strange in fundamental churches. It's strange to hear that what we do for God is to glorify Him, not to receive a gold star from the preacher. God is primary. My purpose in life is not me. It is Him. It's to glorify Him and nothing else. So what God wants is an Ephesians 3.21 church. Is it coincidental that Paul wrote this in Ephesians 3.21? Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. And so now we see Christ standing here to rebuke a church at Ephesus that is no longer an Ephesians 3.21 church. So what does he see in their future? 
Oh, God is sovereign over all things, sovereign over all contingencies. And so there are two ways that this can go. Two ways it can go. Repent or be removed. Verse number 5. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. That's a very simple warning. Maybe it's not as simple to understand. Now, the first part of that is very easy. The second part is actually an ecclesiastical quandary. The first part is repent. Now, that, that folks, is just basic Bible doctrine. Repent. Turn around. Go in the opposite direction. Change your ways. That's what repentance is. It's a change of mind that leads to a change in actions. So he says, repent. Go back to being a church that loves doctrine and morality because it loves Christ. And so go back to that focus that is only Christ. Glorify Christ with all that you are. Go and sit down at the feet of Jesus again, which is the first love of the church. Now we get that. I hope that you get that. That is a simple remedy to a profound problem. Just reverse yourself. Go back to being a church like it was when Paul was there and Timothy was there and when John was there. Go back and repent of that sin of your lack of love for Jesus. The second part is not as simple. What does he mean when he says, I will remove your candlestick? Well, that's the frightening consequence of failing to repent. If they don't correct, if they don't repent, Christ will remove their status as one of his churches. If they don't listen to the Spirit, then he will leave and he will no longer work in that church. There are some who believe that what he meant was that Ephesus would no longer be a church that called itself Christian. I disagree with that. There could be a fully functioning congregation with a sign on the door that says, Christian church. But that's all that it was. A building, a people, an assembly, and they have works, and they have sacraments, they have hymnals, they have the liturgies, but they have no Christ. No Holy Spirit, no truth, just a pretend church. 2,000 years later, the city of Ephesus is in ruins. It has been for many centuries, hundreds of years, but there are churches that are near that place. In 2006, Pope Benedict XVI visited a shrine at Ephesus called the House of the Virgin Mary. Is that a tip for you? The God of that church is not Christ. Mary's not there either. That's what we call Christless Christianity. And I can tell you that there are thousands of churches. There are some in Ronard Park and some in Santa Rosa that practice Christless Christianity. Churches that meet and they thrive and they use the name of Jesus, but he is not there. Now the difficult part of this is how far can a church go into error before Christ moves out? How long can a church be in error, if it's even a church at all, and still have Christ there? Well, I, I have some ideas about that. I can't name the time that it's going to happen, but sometime a church that works and works and works and keeps on working, but doesn't love, 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 love Jesus Christ, eventually that's not going to be his church. Christ won't be there. To be his church, you must be in love 
with the things that Christ loves and hate the things that Christ hates. So their future could go this way. If they don't repent, they will be Ichabod. That means the glory of the Lord will depart. But what if they listen? What if they do repent? What if they return to their first love? Well, now we're talking a different result. Repent or be removed is now changed to a promise of paradise. In verse number 7, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. They will have the right to the tree of life. Now it's good for you that I'm almost through with this sermon. And I'm almost through with this church because I'm just too tempted to head down this path to the tree of life. I'd love to explain to you the tree of life, but that's another sermon. I can't take that long. So what I want to do is just walk up to that tree and just touch it a little bit, and then later you're free to examine it on yourselves. What is this tree of life? Well, the tree of life was a tree that was in the first paradise of Eden. That tree is mentioned three times in the book of Genesis, chapters two, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 9, chapter 3, verse 22, and also 3.24. And in Genesis 2.9 it says, And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, the tree of life. This is a tree that was given to sustain life. The Bible doesn't say how, that it did, but somehow this tree that's good for food was for the maintaining of Adam's physical life. And so when he fell and we ate of the other tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God said, you can't eat of the tree of life because if you do, you will live forever in that sinful state. In Genesis 3.22, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Verse 24 is the remedy for that. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. So if Adam ate of that tree, he would have lived forever in a sinful state. So God forced him out of the garden. He put angels in the way to guard the entrance to the garden, so neither Adam nor his descendants could go back in and eat of the tree. The tree of life is mentioned four times in Proverbs, but there it's used only as a symbol of righteousness, which is a characteristic of those that follow the Lord. And besides that, we don't see the tree of life again until we get into the book of Revelation. And in Revelation, this tree has changed its location. It's gone from one paradise to another. And I can't explain how, but the Bible says that the new location of this tree is in heaven. Is it the exact same tree? Is it only a symbol of eternal life? That's a question that I think that I can answer. It's in the end of the Revelation, if you want to turn there. Revelation chapter 22. There's a description of the tree of life. Is it a real tree? Well, let's, let's see what Revelation 22 says. Revelation 22 and verse number 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree 
were for the healing of the nations. That sounds pretty much like a real tree, doesn't it? It has leaves. It produces fruit, 12 kinds of fruit, apparently a fruit for each month of the year. And I don't want you to lose yourself in that because there is no time in eternity. And so what John is doing there is just explaining things that people that have no understanding can understand. We don't understand without referring to time. And so that's why John puts that in there to help us to understand. Now further, the leaves of the tree, it says, are for the healing of the nation. So somehow, in some way, this tree helps to sustain eternal life in heaven. Our text says that those that overcome have the right to eat of this tree. That's the right that Adam lost. But it's restored to those who overcome and are in heaven. So here's the promise. If you overcome, then you will have the right to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. Well, that brings up one last question for us. Who are those that overcome? Who are these people? Well, I think we should ask the former pastor of the Ephesian church. He also had a forum class. And in 1 John 5, 5, he tells us the answer. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth Jesus is the Son of God. Let me explain that to you very quickly. You believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That does just not mean simply believe that God sent down His Son, that Jesus died, that He went to the cross, so on, so on, so on. I'm talking about a personal faith in Jesus Christ where you recognize Him as the Lord who is the Savior of your soul and you have put your faith and your confidence in Him to take you to heaven when you die. That's what it means to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So those who overcome are those who believe in Christ. And all those who believe in Christ in that way will overcome. And just to short circuit everything for you, so we have no mistakes here, that anyone who does not believe in Jesus Christ will not be in heaven. They will not overcome and they have no right to eat of the tree of life. Now we return to this problem of the Ephesian church. What happens when the church loses its first love? Well, it may take a while, but eventually Christ is no longer preached. Eventually there are other things that replace love for Him. And so we see that in churches today, don't we? Other things that replace the love for Jesus. Now it's love for the Virgin Mary. And it's love for this and that and other things that become the way of salvation. Maybe it's love for certain sacraments like baptism. Maybe it's the practice of penance. Maybe it's saying the rosary. Maybe it's even feeding the poor. So basically it's become a system where Christ does not save, but you save yourself. Christ is not going to stay there. He blows out the light on the candlestick. He shuts the door behind him. He turns out the lights and nobody is home. So what do you do? How do you prove that Christ is your love? Did you know the Bible has an answer for that? How do you prove that Christ is your love? Everyone who is a member of Berean Baptist Church should know the answer to this question. If there is anybody on this planet Earth who should know the answer to this question, you should know, because I spent a year teaching you this, that the way that you prove that you love Jesus Christ according to the Word of God, are you ready for it? The last time that the tree of life is mentioned in the Bible, catch the connection, okay? Revelation twenty-two fourteen. Blessed are they 
that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. How many of you have that in your Bible for you right now? Revelation 22, verse 14. Would you turn there? Everybody turn to Revelation 22, 14. Let's look at it together. Revelation 22, verse number 14. I want you to read this with me. I don't want you to miss this. How are you going to prove that you love Jesus? Revelation 22:14. Read it with me. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. Imagine that. Imagine this. To love Christ is to keep his commandments. Where have I heard that before? Where did you hear that before? Pastor John wrote this while he quoted the Lord Jesus in John 14, 15. Jesus said this very thing, If you love me, keep my commandments. Then John wrote it to the church in 1 John 2, 3 through 6, And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. So that, so he that saith he abideth in him, ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. Now let me make the point very clear to you. I am not saying, and you know, hopefully, I'm not saying that keeping the commandments is the way that we are saved because there is no one who can keep the commandments perfectly, and that's exactly what God requires. The only way that we're saved is because Jesus Christ kept the commandments. And our faith in Him is the means by which God transfers His righteousness to us. And now we are enabled as Christians, as those who know Christ as Savior, we are now enabled to keep commandments. And what John is telling us here, here is the proof that you have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, that you look into the Word of God, and you live by Christ's commandments. To do anything less than that is to hate Christ. Because Jesus said, if you love me, this is what you will do. Keep my commandments. Now folks, then this is the summation of the message of the Spirit to the church at Ephesus. Love Christ. Prove that you love him. Love what he loves. Hate what he hates. Keep him first in your heart. And then you have the right to the tree of life in the paradise of God. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you now confessing that our love for you is not what it should be. Lord, we know that we need to love you more. We need to keep on working, certainly. We need, there are more works that we can do. But Lord, many, many times our focus... It's not so much on you, not as much as it should be. Sometimes we look for the applause of men. We look to be patted on the back for what we do. And then there are some Christians who don't seem to care at all about what they do. And to those we would say, look back into the Word of God. The only proof that you have that you are a child of God is by that desire to love His commandments, to keep His law, to light in the law, as David said. Lord, we pray today for our church that we would be doctrinally correct, theologically correct, morally correct, 
upstanding, not compromising. Help us to be that. But Lord, as we do, remember what we do it all for. And that is the love of Jesus Christ. Help us to focus on him. Put all of our heart, everything that we are in our being, into loving and serving Christ. Bless us today as we sing and leave this place and we give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.